Hello and welcome. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My special guest is Jeffrey Sherman, Deputy Chief Investment Officer of Los Angeles-based Double Line Capital, which runs $137 billion in assets on behalf of investors. In his role at Double Line, Jeffrey Sherman is involved in all aspects of Double Line's investment management, coordinating and implementing policies and processes across all of the firm's investment teams. He also serves as lead portfolio manager for Double Line Capital's multi-sector and derivative-based strategies. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. It's great to see you again. I'm, I'm very excited to catch up with you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me and look forward to today's discussion. Awesome. So, um, Jeffrey, to kick things off here, just in case there's anyone out there who doesn't know anything about you, uh, although I think that's few and far between these days, um, please tell us about the arc of your career, how you started, where you've been, and, and what you do at Double Line Capital. Yeah. So um, I was, uh, you know, uh, when I went to school, I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so I started, um, you know, I keep, I, I entered as a major, as an undeclared major, you know, so a very, very defined career path with that. Yeah. Um, and after taking a couple of mathematics courses, I found that to be easier. It came easier to me than some of the other courses. So I stuck with the uh, mathematics side and I got a degree in applied mathematics. Uh, I went to grad school after I graduated and uh, entered into a PhD program and realized that I really loathe physics. Uh, and so you, know, um, you, you don't do a lot of uh, math degrees without uh, really being indoctrinated in the, in the world of physics. And so right. at the time, uh, I was studying more on the statistical side as well. And there was a new prevalence of quants going to Wall Street. And so um, I decided that I would try to change the direction of what I was doing and uh, try to use my application math to finance. And so um, I transferred uh, from the PhD program and ended up in a master's program in financial engineering. And so from there, uh, I got an internship at an entity called Trust Company of the West. Um, I was an intern there and uh, I met a, a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey Gunlock there, uh, who was the, the CIO of the fixed income area. And I uh, just was uh, very interested in what they were doing. So I got a job on the on the risk side to begin with. I joined Mr. Gunlock's team uh, on the after location side um, and uh, started working there. Uh, a gentleman I worked for um, at TCW, he was uh, he was someone who wrote a lot of papers and, and was well, well thought. And so he uh, wrote something on commodities. And so my first foray outside of the fixed income after location world was in the commodity space. Uh, so we collectively built some commodity strategies that we were pretty successful running uh, for the next few years while we were there. And then from there, uh, when we split out and created Double Line, um, I started started at Double Line. And um, you know, uh, the career at Double Line, I, I've worn many hats. You know, I, I started as uh, you know the world plays we're going to do anything it takes to build the business. Uh, my first uh, title at a Double Line, I was an East Coast wholesaler. Uh, so I, I like to tell people when I interview them, where else can you go from wholesaler to deputy CIO in like six or seven years? And so I was a salesperson because we didn't have anybody. Um, and we were launching a mutual business and, and no one was licensed because we were all institutional people. So I said, look, I can take standardized exams. I'm, I'm good at that. Um, so get, give me a week or two and we'll, we'll figure it out. So that, that's the, the first title I held. Uh, I got back into portfolio management after a few months. Um, you know, we launched a macro fund. Um, and then, you know, we, we built a lot of strategies around that. And so over time, uh, my role has, has changed where, uh, essentially as a deputy CIO, I oversee the investment teams, um, all of the sector heads report into me and, you know, I keep an eye on that business. So it, it really meshes well with being an allocator because, um, I talk to the portfolio managers all the time. So right. as an asset allocator, our team is not just making decisions independently. We're listening to what the PMs are saying, what they're seeing. And by having those conversations, it makes a more integrated process. So I, I think it's, it's really one of the advantages of our team is that we have a long-standing history of working together. We have a lot of average experience of, of, of making these decisions. 
the letterheads changed and the office buildings changed. Uh, well, now the office building is, is home for a lot of us these days. Uh, but what's really been important is the consistency of that process. And so we're always innovating. We're trying to you know, find new ideas, new security types, new parts of the market to invest in. And to me as an allocator, I think that's a very, very important thing to have your hands on with the investment team, the people who are buying the securities, making those decisions and be able to compare that, think about return and risk and how that fits together. So um, that's, that's a small role I play, a double I. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we have about uh, almost 290 individuals today. So we've grown significantly from that first part. Um, but, you know, the, as I said, the, the thesis and, and the processes really haven't changed. It's just the amount of strategies you run, the number of people that are helping make those decisions has changed over time. I think, you know, one of the things that has struck me about you, Jeffrey, is, is that you haven't lost your modesty. And, you, you know, you, 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 you seem to do what you do in the scale that you do it with a, a huge amount of humility. And I, I have to say, I think, I think people appreciate that in general, but I, I, for one, definitely appreciate it greatly. I think that I appreciate that. Well, thank you. That, yeah, that's a, that's a great compliment. Thank you. It's, 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 uh, it's a, it's a humbling business. And, and so, you, you know, when you, when you find people who, who approach it from the core, uh, uh, with humility, it's, uh, it's, it's a really remarkable trait. Well, if, you, if you don't have it, the market will give it to you, right? So when <laughs> yeah. you get overconfident and things, you know, the market will check you. And, and look, I mean, there, there's times we're wrong, you know, but we, we have the wrong view on the, on the world and you have to check yourself too. And so I think that that's an important thing is reflecting on, on what you've done, what's worked, what hasn't worked. And you learn from both sides. You learn from the trades that work, but you learn a lot more from the trades that don't work. And when you do the postmortem on it, um, sometimes you're like, look, I would have came to the same conclusion. And that's really where we've been with like how rates have moved this year. Um, you know, the inflation data, we knew there would be some spikes in it from base effects. We didn't think they'd be as high as they were. But if you'd have told me, you know, eight months ago, we we're going to see a five-handle CPI this year, yeah. I just said, you know, rates are in the mid twos on the 10-year. And obviously they're not today too. So, you know, if I say we, we do those postmortem reflect, but I, I would, we, at this point in this juncture, we didn't come to a different conclusion. So, you know, that's the humility of markets, I think, is yeah. that, you know, no matter what you think about it, uh, it can always go a different direction. And so what I like to say is, you know, fundamentals come home to roost over a long period of time. Um, in the short term, technicals can dominate, but never, ever ignore money flow. Money flow is the biggest driver of the directionality of markets in the short term. And it can last a lot longer than you think. And that's yeah. what's happening right now. And I think some of the things we've seen in REITs is a supply constraint, you know, even with the amount of debt we have in this country um, and the amount that we're going to spend on the infrastructure bill, whether it's a trillion or three and a half trillion, big, big gap in those two numbers. But what you've seen is that the Treasury had a big balance at the Fed. They just drawn it down, you know, and that's caused some of the technical pressure as the Fed's bought a lot. And so, you know, you have to, you have to sit back and say, okay, how did we miss that? Well, we missed it, but at the end of the day, we didn't miss it. We wanted it. We just didn't believe in it. And it was hard for us to, to think differently. And so, uh, you know, look, you, you chalk that up and you say, look, we missed it, but you can't kick yourself. You got to move on. Every day is a new day when you're running money and you got to look at your portfolio. Do you like your portfolio today? And if you don't, you have to do something, but you, you can't run money in the rearview mirror. You've got to continue to think forward. And you need people around you to challenge your ideas. And that's what I love about our team is that we have a lot of folks that sit together, come together to make decisions, but it's not just a bunch of heads nodding vertically. There's intellectual stimulation, there's challenging the theses, and we like that. And I think that makes us all better investors and allows us to really try to improve ourselves. Yeah, I mean, you've got a great team. You've got Sam Lau and and, uh, and Mayberry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to, I just wanted to touch on just before we continue, uh, down the, uh, the road of the macro discussion, but, but it must've been quite something for when, when you made that jump from having been at a gigantic institutional firm to your own shop. I mean, I think that there's something that's underestimated in, in sort of, you know, people think, oh, Jeff, Jeffrey Gunlack is starting a new firm and. And Jeffrey Sherman jumped on board, but but as you said at the beginning, I think I think one of the things that's really overlooked in your story is how difficult 
or how challenging that must have been at the outset to jump from being, uh, you know, a senior vice president at, at a large institution to being, uh, to going to a startup basically and, and starting from a, a very small base as a new firm, as opposed to a very large base with a team of analysts and, and a bank and, you know, like. Yeah, so most people want to say, you know, you go from being a big fish in a small pond and you turn into a small fish in a big pond. I think yeah. you kind of went the other direction there. But yeah. there was a lot that, you know, there was a lot that when we were at the the previous firm that we did a lot of things autonomously. We didn't get a lot of support from the marketing staff. We, right. we, we ran our own compliance off our desk. Like we had that culture of it was almost our own firm within a firm. Yeah. That made it a bit easier, right? And so we knew that our investment team needed to raise money. Like that's how we raised money. And we, we supported the clients because we didn't get a lot of that support, or at least there was a perception we didn't get that support. And so I think that was the culture we already had that we knew we could do it. Now we needed a chief compliance officer. We needed HR. We needed these yeah. ancillary things that we didn't have, but we had our technology teams. Right. We didn't rely on the system. We had them sitting on the desk with us. So there was a lot of it where it was kind of plug and play. And, you know, look, there was a little bit of hubris with us too. We thought, Hey, we start over. No problem. It's going to grow. It's going to be massive. It's going to work. And then the humility kicks in when yeah. you know, there's some challenges, you know, there's some legal challenges and, you know, and then people are like, well, you're a new firm now. We, we can't just port over this institutional money. So it changed the way we thought about things. And we said, okay, look, you know, why don't we pitch institution on here? We have a daily liquidity mutual fund. You, you got a problem with us. You can sell it any given day, right? And, and we saw that dynamic change a little bit. And so the timing was fortuitous. You know, the day we launched our total return strategy, if you go back and look at the chart, I won't forget it for many reasons, but one of them is it's the last time the 10 year traded with a four handle. Uh, <laughs> the 10 year was 4% back then. What, what, what? What great yield back then. Yeah. Right? Amazing. Um, yeah. And so I think that there's part of that. And, you know, look, that at the end of the day, the reason all of us left is that we enjoyed the team. We enjoyed the mentorship of, of Jeffrey Dunlon, but also we enjoyed working with each other. We enjoyed markets. This is what we want to do. And we want to do it together. And I think that's something you don't hear a lot in this industry. People are very cutthroat. Uh, it's a lot of self-serving yeah. um, behavior and people think they do it all. And so, you know, your compliments to me at the beginning is that I know I don't do it all. Uh, there's a lot, I rely on a lot of people around me to make me look at yeah. it, you know, and they make me look very good. Even you, your compliments are because of the people around me. And I don't forget that. And so we're, it's, it's an amalgamation of people that make the team and it, the people are very important. And it's also, we got to motivate and lead those folks to, to continue to strive and innovate. So. All those things together, I think is, you know, why I joined and like I was in my early thirties, it was a, it was a good time to take some risk. And as we all said, like if, if it fails, it fails, but at least we tried. And uh, fortunately <laughs> it, it didn't fail. It's been very successful. And so, um, you know, as they say, the rest is history. Yeah. I, I mean, we love the Sherman show and, and, uh, you know, we, uh, recently caught up with your, uh, presentation with Francisco Blanche. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, on, on the discussion around commodities, I, I, I want to get to that in this, in this conversation. Um, so Je Jeffrey, we, we seem to be in this weird, this sort of weird in between undecided intra or post pandemic world of permanent uncertainty, uh, massive financial and soon hopefully fiscal stimulus. Um, the discussion around whether inflation is fleeting or if it's decided, uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, the latest absolutely crazy Christopher Nolan movie, Tenet. I have not. No, no. There's a there's a there's a great line that gets repeated throughout the film, which is a theme of of the film. And the line is, "We live in a twilight world. There were no friends at dusk." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So it's very it's very 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 poetic. What it makes me think of is that you know we're sort of in that in between world between day and night or night and day, um, and and when you know, we're in, in between, we're possibly in between, uh, you know, in the change of a regime between, you know, the last 40 years where we've had falling yields and yields are now at rock bottom. Um, so this kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, portfolio construction, where do you go? And, and, but before we get to that, 
Where are we right now? And what's going on in your view in the economy and markets? Well, we're in bizarre world, right? Like yeah. I said, you know, you have, you have this idea that you have some of the highest inflation prints we've seen. And if, if you strip out the commodity prices and look at core inflation measures, in some instances, it's, you know, the, the highest prints we've seen in 40 years. So coinciding yeah. with that. So you talked about the bond rally over 40 years. We're talking about inflation levels we haven't seen in 40 years. Um, yeah. So why are rates where they are? Well, um, you know, that that's a you know that's the ten or twenty trillion dollar question when it comes to the treasury market. So um, you know where are we? Well, we are in an expansion. There's no doubt. Um, no matter how you look at it, we are in an expansion in the economy. The U.S. is going to print one of its best you know years uh, on a calendar year basis in nominal GDP and right. real GDP in many decades. And so uh, as you look at it, you know you say, okay, well that's fine. That's in the past. What's going to happen going forward? And the difference in this cycle versus, let's say, the GFC is that you are getting fiscal stimulus. And the, the, I think the powers that be globally have noticed that, you know, if you if you juice monetary policy while providing fiscal stimulus, wow, look at what you can do. Yeah. And so, you know, there's challenges with, with like the Eurozone, for instance, because they don't have that coordinated fiscal policy that we can do here in the U.S. But I think you know, you're seeing some of those those benefits trickle to the market. So I don't think that the fiscal authorities all of a sudden become super hawkish on the deficits and we're going to balance budgets. Um, they're realizing that you can get broader participation of the overall economy. And so I think that's the thing that's going to keep this cycle going. Now, and granted, the the NBER, which is the uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research, they declare the official beginning and end of recession. And I don't know if you saw it here, but a couple of months ago, they came out and told us that we are out of the recession. Right. And, you know, I think it was July. They came out, sorry, June or July. They came out and said it. And the recession was over in April of 2020. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> really, um, a timely data, you know, yeah. so all the young analysts out there looking at, you know, the, the beginning of any recessions and trying to analyze that. Well, remember, it took them 16 months to realize we've been out of a recession. So um, it's not it's not a signal you can trade on, but right. it's the shortest recession on record. Um, you know the fastest expansion afterward, and I think what you're, you're going to see with this is that there's going to be some more continued fiscal stimulus. Now what that means is is that more deficits, right? Because it's not going to be a balanced budget. Um, and what does that mean ultimately? And none of us really know, but we do know that there will be some inflationary aspects of that behavior. And it's not just because of the debt. Because we found a buyer, we found a new buyer, right? Uh, yeah. Early in my career, you know, the question was always asked, well, what happens when the Japanese stop buying? You know, they're, they're, what happens when they stop buying treasuries? Right. You know, who's going to buy the debt? And everybody said, you know, I don't know. And then the answer was China. Okay. Right? And then, you know, then the question in the mid, mid aughts and everything was like, well, what happens if the Chinese stop buying? Well, what, what's going to happen? And, and the answer was, it's the Fed. Right. And so, you know, these are the things we worry about. Remember that, you know, sovereign entities are, you know, household balance sheets. They could run big deficits. You can run these things. And so, you know, the whole Rogoff Reinhardt research was that if debt to GDP exceeds like 85, 90 percent, you know, that stymies growth and you're in this cycle, but are in this vicious downward cycle. But we haven't seen that anywhere. Right. I mean, you know, Japan has, you know, debt ratios approaching, you know, 300 percent of debt to GDP. We're obviously over a hundred now in this country, but at the end of the day, you can inflate, you can grow and that'll change. So instead of being, you know, waxing philosophically about this, what, what does it mean right now is that we are in an expansion. There's been a lot made about world bonds have rallied, the yield curve's flat, the bond market thinks a recession's coming. And I disagree with that view. Um, I think that, you know, there are, there are some hiccups out there, you know, removing some of the unemployment benefits that expired uh, this last week. Um, that's going to have a little bit of effect there. Um, I don't buy into the concept that, you know, uh, people aren't taking jobs because they're getting massive stimulus. I just, I, I believe more in the American psyche and people that want to work and have right. to contribute. You're always going to have anecdotes about people not working, <clears throat> but I think we're, it, it's a, it's a change in dynamic. And so, you know, I think when we look back, we'll say the pandemic was one of those defining moments. Like it changed our society and not just because of the unfortunate deaths and sickness we've seen, 
but just how we value relationships, how we value workers, right? And I think that dynamic is shifting, but I think what you're also seeing is a rise of labor and labor right. has more power than they've had. Now, granted, capital's still winning, right? Because there's always the push and pull of labor and capital. And so what I mean by that is that labor is voting to say, we want better wages. You know, we want more business. We want more flexibility. We hear this from our workers, right? Our staff at Double yeah. saying like, look, we want to have a hybrid environment. We want to be able to work remote a few days a week. Um, and, you know, given we're in California, it's like we're going to work remote five days a week right now. <laughs> and so I, I think, you know, as you look at it, uh, that rise of labor is it leads into your other part of the equation that it's to me, that's going to cause a little bit more of inflation. Now, right. when I say a little bit more of inflation or more inflation, people start going, oh, we're going back to the 80s or, you know, there's a lot of things made about, you know, we're back in the, you know, the, the whole uh, Jimmy Carter era and stuff. And my boss has said that, too. And there are some parallels there, but remember, we're coming off of a, an inflation rate of 2%. When we had the Carter era, you know, you came off of a gold standard, right? right. We we're using fiat currency the first time. You already had inflation running in the six and seven hands. So it can get out of control. But what you're seeing here is that the growth rate has likely peaked, okay? We're not going to probably grow at, at double digit nominal GDP for the foreseeable future. I think we can all agree at that. The trend yep. line was 2.3% real, um, you know, and uh, you add back the inflation, the nominal was like four and a half, right? So, okay, we're getting back to four and a half is kind of our baseline growth rate. But that being said, you know, we are still going to grow. Our earnings are still growing. They're not going to grow at, you know, the insane numbers we saw. But in general, you're seeing people change the dynamic to this marketplace. And so I think there's been much made about these, these older signals and say, oh, the curve's flattening, the bot market knows something. Well, what's happened in the last, you know, five months is that you, you made the banks buy more high quality assets when they changed the leverage ratios that were given because of the pandemic and they made them hold more tier one capital. So what do they buy? Right. They buy treasuries, they buy agency mortgages, right? That's compressed spread. What's also happened is that you've seen foreigners come into our market, right? They've been buying because they also were experiencing the Delta wave prior to us, right? Right. And further to that, hedging costs had come down. So all these things, you know, created this demand for the, the rate side of the equation. So I don't think you can just say, oh, rates have rallied. The bond market thinks the world's melting down. Now, let's talk about that's what's, what has happened. What's going to happen? Well, I wish yeah. I could tell you, Pierre, and everybody <laughs> by the beach and not have to worry about it, but... As I look at the inflation data, what I see is that the transitory narrative, it's, it's played out. What, what I mean by that is that the Fed has talked about transitory, and I agree with them on used cars or autos in general, hotels, leisure, airline tickets. Those things were driving that, that temporary spike early in the second quarter. However... Um, you've seen that those things stabilize. Some of them reverse. People use lumber as an example. I'm like, lumber is not in the commodity basket that much. Yes, it goes into housing, but in general, lumber is not a good barometer for inflation. So right. look at oil prices, look at copper, look at nickel, look at these things that were that are heavy consumption. And so I still think the supply chain side of the equation is not transitory. I think if you wanted to find transitory 18 months, I think we're going to have problems for another 18 months or so of just the this, this supply constraint. So that's going to put a little bit of pressure on inflation. The other thing that's likely to do is that you're going to see the housing component start to drive a little bit more of CPI. Right now, if you look at core CPI, it's almost 40% of core CPI is the housing market. And we know that we had a record print housing last month. Right. Year over year is 18%. If you use Case Shiller, FHFA, well, data, not how you get there. But if you look at the inflation component, the, the housing component of CPI, it was 2.5% year over year. So I don't know about you, but 2.5 versus 18, there's a little bit of a difference in those two yeah. numbers, right? Now, is it going to spike? No, but it's going to put some upward pressure on there. So the thing about the housing market is it tends to be stickier to the downside. So what I'm getting at with all of this is that I think inflation is not going back sub two, right? I do think for the next couple of years, you can easily see three handle inflation, which isn't the end of the world, right? Yeah. But that the variables in here is going to be what happens with wages. And remember, with, with labor gets its way, and it looks like labor is kind of winning some of this battle. You see it from the administration, right? They're yeah. not, 
you know, Joe Biden came out and said, pay your workers. You can't hire people, pay them more. You know, he, he was yeah. that at the conference, at, at the press conference that day. And so those things to me are a shift in the dynamic where, you know, it's, it's looking out for the people. And if that's the case, that makes a better society, but it will put a little bit more, uh, because we're on the wage pressure, there'll be more consumption, but there'll be a more robust participation. So yes, will it put some pressure on margins? Sure. Right. Labor costs are going to go up. However, you know, if you think about, you know, setting this, the table for a better broad expansion, you're setting up all that dynamic. So what does it mean? It means that we're going to have to live with a little bit higher inflation. It's not likely to be as transitory as you've been told, which tells me the rates market is extremely overvalued at this point. Right. Absolutely. How does, how does uh, something like yesterday or today's news about, about uh, Amazon in particular uh, stepping up and, and offering all of its employees, uh, it was 700,000 plus employees, a chance to uh, have their education paid for by the company. See, I, that's what I'm saying. I think labor has yeah. power. That's what I'm getting yeah. to you is that, yeah. you know, you, you're, it, it's, a, it's a societal shift. And this is the dynamic. And like, you, you, there's catalyst. And I think yeah. some of this was not just the pandemic, but what we saw in the social movement last summer, right? Where, yeah. you know, injustices, you know, people are tired of this. It's like, okay, it's, it's you know, when, when, we, when we kind of, uh, you know, have this problem where we have um, a, a recession, that tends to bring things out, right? You get the angst, the anger, you yeah. lose your job, you're displaced, we're stuck at home. That gets the tone to shift. And we saw this too, whether it's the social movements of saying, you know, there's racial inequalities, there's, you know, a gender inequalities. Those things are being talked about. They're being talked about at every level, right? It's not yeah. just a discussion over the dinner table or in certain cohorts. It's being discussed at, at the political level, right? We're seeing that. You're, it's being discussed at the Fed. The Fed's telling you the unemployment rate, they're not focused on that number. They want to see broader participation in all cohorts. It's being discussed at the corporate level. This is part of ESG policy, yeah. right? And so you're seeing this dynamic where, you know, it is more inclusive. And I think that is a societal shift. And so seeing things like the Amazon announcement saying that we want good workers, we want to pay people. Yeah. I think of a company like Costco, right? Costco's always been one of these places, good benefits, good wages, happy employees, great business, right? Yeah. And so I think you're seeing this where it's not just, you know, it's all about a dollar. It's all about squeezing every single thing so that the CEOs can make money, but it's broader participation. And, you know, I, I think it's a good thing. Look, we're capitalists yeah. at heart, right? We all invest in markets. This is what we do. But we also know that, you know, it, it, you can't just have 10 people have all the wealth in this country because people are hungry. You know, that's when the bricks have those windows. And so <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it's good. And, you know, we've always believed in paying our employees as well. You know, we have a partnership structure, you know, th these are important things because, you know, it's not just one person doing it. And in general, you know, people need to eat, people need to live, people need to right. take vacations. Right. And so um, I, I welcome it. And I think it's, it's a good thing. And look, your stock may correct in a short period of time or something like that, but it makes for a better workforce and a better company. And in general, I think that it's a great approach. A hundred percent. It's, it's, uh, it's really synonymous with, with what, uh, European companies have been doing for a long time. I think in particular Germany, German companies have had a policy of educating their, yeah. their work. Yeah. I'd also, you yeah. know, I think there's a little extreme in, in the Eurozone and things too, yeah. you know, right like in France, you can never get fired yeah. and things like that. There needs to be, yeah. there needs to be checks and balances, but you know, yeah, absolutely. giving your people living wages, you know, giving them benefits, giving them time off. You know, it's important, you know, that's, that's why we have redundancy, right? You know, let people come back. They're, they're healthier. They're happier. Yeah. Uh, they can't just sit in front of a zoom meeting all day, you know, for, you know, for <laughs> at, at and, and expect them to be productive. Right. So yeah. there's things you have to do and understand we're still humans. Every corporation, it's a collection of human beings. Right. And when you start to think about that. Yeah, you, know, you say, well, maybe we should treat each other a little bit better. And, you know, that was my tenant last year when people were saying, you know, what's going on with this? I'm like, maybe we should just treat each other better. We yeah. start with the golden rule, right? Of just treating others how you want to be treated, you know? And I think that permeates throughout a, a, a culture. And, and that's what we've tried to foster at Arthur. And, you know, uh, again, we don't get it right every day or every every decision we make. But if you have that as your core tenant, I think it's I, I think it's a good philosophy. 
it's a good business nonetheless. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I, I hundred percent agree with that. So, um, so Jeffrey, what are you doing given your view in terms of investment, uh, portfolio construction considerations, how should investors be positioning for the current times? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, given my view on inflation, the first thing I, you know, I hear from people is like, oh, you love tips, right? No, I don't love tips. I, I just, I, you know, the Fed's got too big of a footprint. Uh, I don't want to buy something that has a, a massively negative real yield today. Uh, it doesn't make sense. And then that means I don't like the treasury market that much either because of the same component. The nominals, they have a, they have a positive yield, but on a, on a real yield basis, they're extremely negative. And so the, the the Fed has had too much of an outside impact on on the tips market. One, but secondly, you know, I, I think that you know the the key ways to manage the inflation components to manage the interest rate risk because if we get inflation and it's persistent and the the psyche of the bond market changes to say, okay, this is not transitory. What's going to happen to yields? They're going to go up, and so the the easiest thing for an investor to do is say, okay. Maybe I want to manage that interest rate or duration risk in my portfolio. So that's the first thing we've done. Right. You know, we continue to be underweight duration of the market. You know, we've bought some back this year, just given the sell-off we saw early in the year. And, you know, we keep kind of replenishing duration. That's one thing. Every day your duration goes down if you don't do something. So we kind of replenish it a little bit here and there, but we're not excited about it. I mean, the 131 10-year we have today is not exciting at all. Uh, but yep. we need to own a little bit to keep up ballast in the portfolio. Um, so the next obvious thing, if we're in the expansion, you want to own credit, right? So the, the natural thing is like, if I want safety, where do I go? Well, I go to the investment grade corporate bond market. And then you start to dig under the hood. You say, okay, well, investment grade corporate market, it's, there's really no default risk today. Yeah, It's very benign. Um, the spreads are somewhat reflective of that, but the spreads are wider than the default rate. So that means there's money to be made. And then you're like, okay, that, that sounds like a good trade. And then you look at the market and say, wait a second, the market is super long in its maturity, right? The duration of the investment corporate market is near as long as it's ever been. And yeah. it is the law, if you ex exclude the last year or so, it is the longest it's ever been. And so all of a sudden you, you don't like interest rate risk, you want to own credit and you jump into IG, investment corporate bonds. And all of a sudden, you now have your duration risk again and yeah. the treasury market as a whole. So that's a part we're very underweight. We like the story, hate the duration. So that's another thing. So now what do you do? Well, the obvious choice from there is you go down to the below investment grade market. It's a shorter duration market right. um, because it's a high yield. They don't want to issue as long a paper. Um, it tends to be kind of most deals are five year live. So the duration there is a lot shorter. Um, well, Investors are smart. They've figured that out too. Now spreads are tighter there. And, you know, when I look at a high yield market, I'm getting three and a half or inside of three and a half as a market. Mm -hmm. And they like the trade, but I don't like the investment. Right. And so I don't think there's a big default risk um, in the next year or so. Why? Because what usually causes defaults are maturities. So it's, you know, some companies run into a problem. They can't service the debt. It's called the maturity wall that usually right. causes the problem. And we don't have that because corporate America has been able to borrow ex extensively for the last year. So although I don't care for it that much, I don't, I, I like it more than IG, but I know it has a different risk. So I got to balance. That's why I really own some high yield with treasuries than own investment in corporates because now I can get back to kind of similar yields, similar price files on average. Um, what I do like is the loan market though. And why I like the leveraged loan and bank loan market is it's floating rate, right? So this is still corporate America. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's floats. People are saying, well, you have this rate, you know, rates are going to push up. Well, the problem is the floating, it floats well to the front of the curve, well to LIBOR, which is a movie, right? Until the Fed starts to signal that they're actually going to hike, you're not going to see improvement there. But it does have upside at some point. And the spread are pretty similar, if not wider than high yield in some instances. And so um, loans are something we've been a buyer of. We've added to our portfolios that can take them um, over the last month or so. There's been some weakness there. Uh, it, it's strange. We, we've noticed that when rates rally like 40 or 50 basis points on the back end, there's going to be outflows in the loan market. So we're like, this is a perfect time. They're selling for the wrong reason. It's not because it's a default problem. There's other things going on. So we've added to the loan book. And so you can't just run a portfolio of treasuries and loans. You have other things. And this is where the securitized market is, is really the sweet spot today. And when I say securitized, I'm talking about things like the mortgages, 
um, residential mortgages. Right. Uh, one thing we really like are commercial mortgages. We added a lot uh, to those positions last year. Uh, we continue to maintain those. We haven't trimmed those whatsoever. Uh, we've rotated some of the exposures around, but we're keeping allocations to those because we think there's really some good stories there. Multifamily is a strong story. The industrial, uh, I'll call it the industrial revolution there, where right. talking about warehouses, uh, cell phone touters, data centers, those things fit inside of the commercial real estate market. Um, people focus, on, they, they hear CRE, commercial real estate, and they think office space. Well, guess what? Office space is a big challenge, but I'll tell you right now, Double Line is paying its lease. You know, yeah. you know we have four floors in downtown Los Angeles. That There's nothing wrong with, you know, that space today. Now, long term, maybe there's a dynamic that shifts. You know, maybe people have a smaller footprint. But also remember, there's been a big exodus from larger cities to smaller ones. That's what they bought. Office space. Right. So people in Nashville, you know, Atlanta, uh, you, you talk about Charlotte. Obviously, everybody knows about Austin. Austin, we think, is a bit overvalued, but oh, Denver. People have shifted those areas. And you go to the office, Pierre, people forget yeah. that. So we can, you can't just paint these broad strokes about markets. And, and retail, retail was challenged going in, and it's, it's going to be challenged going forward. Yeah. But so if you pick your spots, you can do well. Then there's the collateralized loan market, CLOs. I love the bank loan market. I love yeah. the CLO market even more because we can use the, the structure to and give us subordination. We can delve down and get better yields. So if you want to make that directional bank loan bet, the CLO market, especially the below investment grade market, um, tough to build big positions in, but you're talking stuff that easily yields seven today uh, with relatively low risk to our view. Yeah. It's got some mark to market risk. We don't think it has a lot of default risk. Um, the other thing you can do is go into ABS. Uh, the consumer has been very strong and another way of buying on the consumer. So notice all these trades I've described. I'm talking about residential mortgages, consumer. We're right. talking about ABS, the consumer. Well, commercial, uh, I'm sorry, collateralized loans. That is kind of more uh, corporate America. CMBS, it's a hybrid corporate and consumer. So notice I'm still betting on the U.S., but these assets are half to a third of the duration of the investor in corporate market. Right. And they offer significant pickup and yield. So we can do a big diversified portfolio of these various credit exposures, still making a bet on the economy, still making a bet on the consumer, not all in on it, right? But just general that people are going to service this and continue to service that debt. And you can build portfolios in these sectors that have yields north of three today. Yeah, some of them is two and a half to three, let's call it. And the duration of that can be somewhere between two to four years. So all of a sudden now I've shortened up my duration of my credit. It allows me, if I want to buy duration, I can do it in, I'll put the real market in treasuries where there's no default risk. I could buy them in agency mortgages where there's no default risk, right? Things like that. So it's marrying these concepts together that I think gives you good portfolio construction today. Now, you know, look at, at the end of it, you know, some managers are just credit all the time. That's what they buy and they love corporate bonds. You know, they love them at, at six yield. They love them at two yield. It doesn't matter. Uh, they're all relative value. But today what I'm seeing is that why take the duration risk? Why take that if you don't have to? Um, yes, it hurts a little bit when rates rally like they did in the second quarter. But again, it gives you more stability. There's less volatility out there. And I think that's the way to position today. So that's kind of my broad asset allocation. Uh, we yeah. have a little bit of emerging market debt. Um, out there today, you know, it's not as attractive as it has been. We've cut that over the last, you know, let's call it, you know, 10 months or so. We've cut that down a, a, a fair amount, roughly in half, but we still own some. We're probably as low as we'll get, um, but we want something else to happen. But given the macro environment, given how bad the virus has been in these areas and their response to it, it's amazing to me how well EM is traded, you know? And so yeah. uh, we're, we're looking for a little bit of backup there to add to that, but that, that's what I, I think a, an investor should be focused on. I'll call them non-traditional sectors. That they're they're non-traditional, but we've been trading them for twenty plus years. You know, so at some point it's got to become traditional. I think. Yeah, I think I think you know I think the problem is that you know the sixty forty or the traditional sixty forty uh, portfolio has continued to do well. And and that's got investors sort of hanging on to it. Right. Uh, mind you, the 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 look of the 40% that's supposed to be in fixed income has shifted more towards credit yep. and, and uh, you know, master limited partnerships, that sort of thing. Yep. But, but the problem there is, as is, is you sort of very nicely uh, described is that duration 
I mean, if you consider that equities are the highest duration assets uh, in the market, and then and then that stocks being the longest of all, <laughs> absolutely, right? You you know, then then you you add credit to that as a fixed income allocation, then you know you're getting into a a problem where you know seventy, eighty, ninety percent of your portfolio could be exposed to high duration. So yeah, uh, uh, this way too. So there's a perception of diversification and, you know, the, yeah. old, the old joke in, in, in the trading market is it's the Texas hedge, right? You know, you have, you have your long and your short and they're really the same trade. And I, I think about it this way, and this may be caustic to some people and it may be a little controversial, but it's like buying a basket of cryptocurrencies. Yeah. You think you're diversified, but they tend to move in the same direction. I mean, look, look at it. Right. Yeah. They're going to have outsized moves well to each other, but when they sell off, they all sell off together. Right. And the rally we've seen in the last month or so, they've all rallied together. Right. And so it, it's that just owning a bunch of different assets doesn't give you diversification. You right. ought to look at the underlying drivers. I think that's what you're pointing out here, Pierre. And I think it's very important for investors to think about that. You know, and that's where I'd say, I think people got the signals from the bond market. Personally, I think they were wrong, you know, yeah. over the last four months. They, okay. Rates rallied in the second quarter. Oh, rates peaked, earnings have peaked, you know, we're mired in a recession. Here we go again. It, that's not the signal to take. There was, you know, there's some rebalancing takeaways. The 60 did so well, Silver, you know, pension plans and, and, and um, the governmenties were rebalancing, right? Because they're like, look, I, I need to buy a little bit more. You know, it, again, you hold your nose to buy it at 175, but they did, it was the right trade, at least thus far. So I, I think it's important for investors to understand what drives these components. And you can't just naively look at it. And as you said, there's been, there, you have the credit component, you have more and more duration on that side. And so uh, we use a, a simple heuristic and, you know, uh, we look at yield relative to duration, right? And it's, it's a very simplistic thing. And so why do we look at that? Well, yield is a way of thinking about return and fixed income. If rates don't move and there's no defaults, yield is what you get. So the top equations return. Right. Duration yeah. is one measurement of risk. Right. So return to risk. Wow. What a, what a novel concept here. Right. Um, and I, I was, uh, you know, it's something we'd always looked at. And I think I've made a tongue in cheek comment one day, or I, I know I made it. And I said, man, you know, just look at the yield duration. And I said, you know, this is like a sharp ratio. It's a forward looking sharp ratio. And I was like, you know, Bill Sharp, you know, he got a Nobel Prize for, you know, taking a Z-score and calling the Sharp ratio, <laughs> completely diminishing all the work he did, right? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's an excellent academic. Right. He deserves everything he got. And I said, you know, well, I'm just going to call it yield duration, the Sherman ratio. I'll wait for the Nobel committee to call one day. And, and Jeffrey <laughs> laughed at it and then he just started off the Sherman ratio. So it's something we actually look at. I, I hate the, I hate the moniker of it, you know, but it's something that I think is important to think about because What's, what's the beauty of that component? And again, duration should encompass spread duration, which encompasses default risk. If you take that, it's a valid metric. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, again, and you should loss adjust your yield. So if you do that, it is a forward looking sharp ratio, but here's the simple thing about it, Pierre. If I tell you that the yield to duration is 0.2. Okay. You're like, okay, who cares? No, it gives you a very, very intuitive, uh, way to think about your portfolio. What it says at point two, if yields go up 0.2%, 20 basis points over the next year, your duration risk will offset all of your yield. So if rates go up right. 0.2, right, you will have a negative rate of return, assuming no reinvestment. There's some missed options there. But if it goes, if rates go up less than that, then you'll have a positive return. So it's a way to think about do I have enough income, enough yield to offset kind of that noise in the duration market. And so all things being equal, and again, assuming you got your yield assumptions right and loss adjusted, you have your duration right, bringing in spreads and defaults and, and all that into it, it is a really good way of thinking about your forward-looking return to risk. Right. And why I bring that up is because over the last year, the Barclays U.S. aggregate have had the worst yield-to-duration ratio it had on record. And, and, you know, people have written some articles about it because, you know, we, we really harp on this because we think it's an important way to think about it. And that dynamic hasn't changed a lot. The yield to duration ratio is pretty ugly uh, on the Barclays U.S. aggregate today. So it's it's great to say, okay, yields go up and, okay, my stocks are going to go up because that's the long-term historical relationship. Right. But it depends on why yields go up. If they go up because of inflation, maybe that relationship doesn't hold as well. Right. And so that's what you have to think about. So 
that's always the challenge with markets. You, 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 you're saying about the, the twilight and, and, you know, are we going to see dust? But there's always uncertainty. You know, people went back to, oh, it's an easy year. It was never easy no. when you're making the decisions, right? And so yeah. I think the 60-40 has more challenges. The thing I disagree with a lot of folks about is that we're like, well, we're going to go to private markets. The private markets, you know, we're going to do that. And I'm like, okay, so you don't market to market. Yeah. Great. But how, how do you value private markets, Pierre? They use something called a heuristic called the public markets. <laughs> but if the public markets are rich, what does that say about the private market? So uh, again, there's some beauty of it. I like to, to joke that in March of last year, the good news was private equity to what didn't go down. They didn't have time to market yet. They weren't marketing it for the next month or so to market yeah. back up. So it had no volatility. But, uh, you know, the thing is, is there's no free lunch in all of this. And, you know, we're just going to be challenged going forward. And, you know, we've been all sitting here saying the valuation of the stock market's high. We should expect low returns. And what are we giving investors? Like 20 handle a year. Yeah. Right? And so at some point that breaks a little bit, but also maybe we just take a pause and we grow into it. So I don't hate the equity market. Um, I like it relative to the bond market because bonds look extremely rich. Well, when I say bonds are talking about treasuries, they look extremely rich here, but rates back up a little bit. The equity market can take it, um, but we need to grow into this. So uh, I think, you know, you know, having a little pause in the equity market's good. Having some drawdowns great because it cheapens things up and again, it allows you to re-sculpt. But when we talk about the market, you can always, you know, are we talking about large caps, small caps, growth, value? There's always ways to play it. And so I think it's just, it's more of a, it, it's more of a picker's market whether that's a sector picker, a stock picker, you know, you're picking a, a country specific risk. Um, you're looking at, you know, various nuances of single idiosyncratic names. I think that's why you're seeing active management shine a little bit here. Yeah. And uh, I think that that's a new trend that we'll see in this next environment. It's amazing. You know, I, I'm just reflecting on your idea, the Sherman ratio idea. You know, it's surprising sometimes how, how an idea can germinate into you know, an oak tree. And um, don't be surprised if that comes, comes back to you that way, you know, as, as. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, right. I don't, uh, don't, no, don't nope. need to call me still, uh, you know, but <laughs> it's a heuristic we use, uh, you know, stuff. Some of our, you know, I've seen some people write about it and attribute to me and that's, it's nice. It's flattering, yeah. but at the end of it, it's just, it's, it's trying to think about ways to explain concepts. Right. And yeah, that's all, that's also our job as investors is, you know, look, we invest, but a lot of it is doing what we're doing right now, having discussion. How do we distill this everybody? Why do you like this versus something else? Well, here's, here's how we're thinking about it. And it's, you know, people are like, well, you must love bonds. You work in the bond market. No, we can hate bonds. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you've got to do something. And what do you do? And, and that th these are concepts that we just, you know, we've refined over the years. And um, again, it, it, it distills down to a simple message. And I think that's what allows people to have confidence in that, okay, well, I kind of trust these guys to run our money. They've been doing that stuff for a while, but these things make sense to me. And like, look, either you're going to focus on the bond market day in, day out, or you've got to outsource it because there's a lot of landmines in that market. They're not going to, they're not going to explode today, but there's the potential for a lot of things to go wrong. And so that's why I say, you know, you can index it. Indexing in the bond business, and again, I'm biased. Everybody say you're down in your book, you know, because we run active portfolios. But indexing in the bond business is different than indexing in the equity market. The more debt you issue, the larger a piece of the index you are. So, Pierre, as you borrow more and more money from me, are you a better credit or a worse credit? You know, mm -hmm. and, and all things being equal, the more money you borrow, the less of a credit worthiness you have, right? And so, this is the but dynamic bond market. Investors do the exact opposite. Where right. they re yeah, I mean, the indexing credit or indexing uh, the bond. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that, that's what I think. Yeah. Be careful. You can't, up, it's, not, it's not this one size fits all approach. And so, again, um, you know, there's times that the index is going to do quite well, you know, and you saw that in March of last year, you know, that because the rate rally, it's dominated by a rate risk. It doesn't have a lot of credit risk in it, even though corporate bonds were down. Like, peak to drop, investment rate corporate bonds we're down almost 20%. People can't believe that. The square duration part of the curve was down like 15, 17%, right? People don't believe that. They're like, no, that, was, that didn't happen. Oh, it's this market. That's how bad things were. It's just the yeah. duration on the other side, the treasuries and the mortgages helped out. But rates have been going up since March of last year. 
know, and people were like, oh, well, they, but they, they bought them back then. And even the rally we saw in July of last year, it was still above the lows in March. And so I just think that, you know, there's a lot of complacency out there. There's a lot of focus on the Fed and, you know, people are saying, well, you know, the, the Fed's going to have our back. I was just talking to some equity derivative strategists before here, and they've, uh, it was a great phrase he used. He said, it's the high strike put from the Fed. And what he means by that, for people that don't know the options, well, he's saying that the Fed won't allow it to go down very much. It's not that there's a put that at 20%. But, you know, when I look at the Fed, the Fed's doing the best they can, right? And yeah. they're going to get out of buying bonds. It's going to take them a while. So the taper does not mean rate rise. It doesn't mean they stop supporting the market. They just buy less. They're going to do it very slow, the unwind. They're going to be, it's going to be very measured. It's going to be very calculated. They're going to convince they don't want to screw this up, right? And so they're not going to hike it to this unless, you know, they start seeing more exogenous signals here. But given that we have Delta, you know, Lambda's coming, as we see, there's cases in California, you yep. already, you know, for those of you that, that didn't study statistics, you got to learn the Greek alphabet, um, you know, but, you know, we're a couple ways in the Greek alphabet already. And, you know, I, I think that you're, you're going to see more support there. So... I just, I wouldn't fight the Fed. That's the old saying. I wouldn't do it today. But also, they're not omnipotent either. They're just, they're a collection of people doing the best they can. And they're going to continue to support the markets, which means so many things will be distorted for a longer period of time. But that doesn't mean you should be complacent and accept that. Always look for good ideas and ways to fill a hole in your portfolio. That's the best portfolio management advice I can give. What is the risk to your portfolio that that will hurt your portfolio today. And if that happens, is there a way to bring something into there that will help offset that? And in the bond world, we, if you can do it positive carry, I mean, can I buy something that yields something that offsets my risk? That's a beautiful thing. We don't have to yeah. hedge, you don't have to give up some return, you're gaining incremental return and diversifying out. Well, uh, Jeffrey, you make a really eloquent case for for the idea that that investors, you know, given the increasing complexity of the market and the environment that we're in, um, the, the market in the environment that we're in. Um, and speaking of, of uh, reducing duration in portfolios, I wanted to get to the subject of commodities because that's something that you've been talking a lot uh, uh, more and more about uh, this past year. Yeah. Um, how, how can investors think about incorporating commodities into their portfolios so as to uh, lower the duration of their portfolio yep. and also um, maybe participate in uh, the inflation that that's coming. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the negative case against commodities, I'll, I'm a bad market. I'll start yeah. That's when I had to get out of the sales side, you know, I step back to what I do. Uh, but you know, the thing is, is the negative case for commodities, they went up a lot. Yeah. Right. And you know, people are like, well, and unlike stocks, since stocks go up a lot, people like them more, you want to buy more, but uh, in most asset classes, they, they that that's the negative case. But they also went down a lot last year. And what, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of early innings still, even though they had the, the sharp increase this last year. But go ahead. Sorry. Fully believe that because yeah. change and why I think that. So that there's, I'll, now I'll give you the positive cases for commodities, even though they're up 20 plus percent and on a broad basket. Um, people have been burned in commodities, so they don't like the asset class. But there's some structural reasons to really like it. So first of all, we have a lot of supply constraints still in the commodity market. The number one being the oil market, right? The U.S. shale production got halted, and we know it's much more difficult to bring back online quicker, right? So you've seen OPEC Plus have a better control in the market. They have a bigger market share because of the eradication that we saw some production last year. Secondly, the U.S. has been heavily indebted in that sector on the energy side. So it's going to take time. They, they didn't want to do a lot more of an investment and ex exploration because they already had high bar. It's, it's a big component of the high yield market, right? where it was financed there. So um, what you've seen there, it's this reticence to really come back and, and try to do CapEx and exp expand a lot. So even though there was this revolution coming into the pandemic uh, from U.S. production, I think that that has been curtailed a bit. Secondly, it's going to take a lot longer to bring back online. Uh, but you also look at the other component and the growth components we cut back, and that's the metals, the industrial metals. And so, you know, people focus on copper. There's a reason copper is the barometer for the health of the economy because it is the most consumed industrial metal. And I think copper is highly constrained still, right? Now, we talked about the supply constraint of, of energy, but when you come on to industrial metals, you know, that's not like just digging a hole in the ground and flying oil. That's digging big holes in the ground, saving roads, getting yeah. a smelting plant up and like using energy 
as an input cost into it to bring that to market. And so mining, you know, uh, a, a good mine takes three to five years of a CapEx outlay to be able to do that. So even if they want to ramp production, it's three to five years out, right? And you could say, okay, maybe it's two to four because there was some of that being uh, done last year. So I just think with the, especially with this electrification of vehicles, there's going to be a lot of demand from that side and the supply just isn't there, right? And so it's going to be constrained for at least a couple more years. And so you mentioned Francisco Blanc. So I think, you know, uh, he has a pretty decent price target on, on copper being about 50% higher than here. Jeff Curry at Goldman has the same thing. And we completely agree with that. So I, I think that's one area people should focus on. Um, but also don't forget, the ancillary industrial like nickel, zinc is very important yeah. too, right? For the galvanization of all of this. And so when you start to look at what's going on there, you find that there's going to have to be a lot of consumption of traditional commodities to move us away from the combustible engine, right? And then, you know, the electrification of everything. So um, I'm very bullish still on the industrial metals. Um, the agricultural side, just given climate change, uh, in general, and what we've seen, look at this year, right? I mean, just floods. We have fires here in California and floods in New York subways in the same day, right? I mean, just the extreme weather, the hurricanes have the severity of them. So this is putting crop production across the globe. So I do think there's a challenge there. There's going to have headline risks, which the commodity investors are evil. They're causing food price inflation, but the inflation's coming from the other side of the equation. It's coming from yeah. bad crop production. So I still like the agricultural sector. So here we go. Those are three main components of the commodity market that have very positive fundamental stories. Yeah. Now, the other side is precious metals. And people buy gold, some people buy silver, you know, um, you know, when you think about the precious metals. But gold has been one of those things that, you know, it hasn't done very well. Yeah, since the pandemic lows, it's done okay. We got the 2000, we set a new high in nominal dollars last year. But if you think about what's happened with the dollar over the last few months, the dollar's rallied, you know, not a lot, you know, it's maybe up four or 5%. Um, and gold's held in there, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's what wobble, but it hasn't sold off massively. And usually you would see that relationship. So I, I still think gold makes some sense here. If you want to get speculative on inflation, silver has a better beta. It, it, it moves faster with it. Yeah. And silver relative to gold looks very cheap right now. So if someone wants to play a direct bet on the inflation side, yeah, I, I like the silver trade over, over gold, but why, why have to bet on what bet on all of them? They have this support. You look at the broad base index today, the broad base BCOM index, it's, it's been just vacillating while the dollar has been rallying right. and it's right at these high levels. So if you're a technician, wait for the breakout, we're on the cusp of it. But I think the catalyst here, Pierre, with a lot of these trades is the dollar. When the dollar starts to depreciate, that's when some of these things take off. And so I'm a big fan of the commodities market today. We're on our asset allocation. We're kind of neutral-ish. We're waiting for that breakout or a, or a breakdown in the dollar. And right. that we would really go overweight at that point in time. So, um, you know, so we run commodity strategies still a double line. So it's something that we think is a important piece to really think about. And investors have had some bad experiences over periods of time. Uh, but we think it is time to revisit that allocation. Jeffrey, wow. I mean, this conversation has just been just a blowout. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's, uh, I, I've, I've got one last question for you. All right, I let you go. Um, uh, it's a would you rather question. Very technical. Okay. Okay. Would you rather be the worst player on an awesome team or the best player on a terrible team? Obviously the former. I'm a team guy. Like, like it's all about the team. How do I contribute? Being the worst player uh, means I have a chance to improve. Right. So I can learn from those around me. Hopefully, uh, depends on if it's athletics. Uh, maybe, maybe I can't yeah. garner those skills, but absolutely, uh, be the worst player on a team or be the, the least smartest guy on a team. Right. Because it's yeah. the ability to learn. And so to me, that, that's the, that's, that's the better approach. And, you know, surround yourself by people smarter than you, hire people smarter than you. That's the way to have the best type of business. And as you said, I've got Sam Law, I got Jeff Mayberry, I got these guys. Yeah. I've done some very good hiring over the years, and um, I surround myself with smart people. I like to be the dumbest guy in the room. Yeah, it's wonderful because they, they, they I think they share your humility as well, having, having heard enough and seen enough of your, of your uh, content. <laughs> so, Jeffrey, where can people find you very quickly? Yeah, so if you're looking for some stuff we put out on Twitter, it's at Sherman Show Pod. Uh, we have our right. Sherman Show podcast. Um, 
it's on all the all the pot providers out there. Obviously, the Double Line website. Uh, we talk about Sam Lau and Jeff Mayberry. They have a podcast now weekly called Double Line Monday Morning Minutes. Yeah. Um, you can you can look that up on, on the Twitter as well. They put out a lot of macro stuff. So uh, complimentary to what we're doing on the Sherman Show pod. And so we also have a YouTube channel, youtube.com right. backslash Double Line Capital. Um, you can find all the videos and stuff we put out there. And so, um, yeah, we have our webcast out there. You know, go to the Double Line Funds website. You can check out our webcast. Uh, we, we do them every few weeks. So, uh, especially in this world, we're putting out lots of content. So, um, you know, anybody wants that, you can do fund info at doubleline.com and, and, and ask questions and you'll get replies from uh, all my uh, all my good colleagues around us. So. Awesome. Awesome. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your incredibly valuable time. 